I ain't afraid of no ghost. It goes to this real kind of like spooky, minery place that I feel like I want a new drug doesn't go into. This pain can be your food. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of This Man Could Be Your Food. I am your host, Nathan Palin, coming to you from Brooklyn, New York. I'm very excited that you could join us this week. We have a really great episode coming up all about Huey Lewis in the news. This week's topic was picked by my very special guest, Leo Sidron. I was fortunate enough to get Leo to head all the way over to this side of town and chat about an artist that it turns out is very near and dear to his heart. Now, if you don't know Leo Sidron, let me tell you a little bit about him first. He is a fellow podcaster who has a show called The Third Story, which is a great music interview program where he brings on a wide variety of different guests. I primarily feel like it's in the jazz vein, but it's a wide group, like from anyone from Boss Skaggs, Nate Smith, Martin Sexton, he's had Clyde Stumplefield on, he's had Glenn Johns on, Butch Vig, Charlie Hunter, Will Lee, like serious real deal musicians. He even had the guy who invented Jerky Boys. Remember that? So anyways, it's a great show. You should check it out. The Third Story with Leo Sidron. Now that is just a drop in the bucket for what else he does. He's also an Oscar-winning producer, songwriter, musician. He's been nominated for a Grammy. He writes and produces his own stuff. He's, he puts out a record like every year. He plays drums behind his dad, the famous Ben Sidron. They tour Europe all the time. So he's killing it, folks. He also happens to be an expat Southern Wisconsinite like myself, so we go way back. Now, I was shocked to find out that one of his favorite bands is Huey Lewis in the News. I was thinking he was going to want to talk about something like Steely Dan or Steve Miller or something like that. You know, because one of the things about Leo is he was writing songs for Steve Miller when he was like 16. So anyways, as I said, killing it. But no, he wanted to talk about Huey Lewis in the News. Now, I didn't realize how much I liked Huey Lewis in the News indirectly because I loved the song Ghostbusters. That was my favorite song as a child. I wanted to play it on piano like no one's business before I really knew how to play piano. That was my reason for playing piano was to learn how to play that song. But it turns out that song was actually ripped off or at least there was a lawsuit and we'll, we're going we're gonna to talk all about it. In fact, the whole interview starts with him and I sort of talking about that, so... I won't ruin it now. Anyways, let me have a sip of uh, delicious Izzy's coffee. Coming to you from Asheville, North Carolina. Shout out to those folks. If you're in Asheville, go get yourself a cup or two. I'm on my third. Whatever. All right, I'm not going to waste any more time, except to tell you, and I'll talk about this a little bit later in the episode, I have also started a YouTube page. This band could be your food, the YouTube channel. As I say this to you, there's no content up on it yet, but the channel is created. And I will be putting content on it. First and foremost, the actual food that we are about to consume, which is the Huey Lewis in the News food. I can't tell you what it is yet. You're going to find out. But I recorded myself cooking it. So in addition to the recipe that will be coming up very soon online, you can actually go to this YouTube channel and watch how I cooked it. If you need some extra pointers, I recommend it. Okay. Enough with the yammering. Let's get on with the episode. Here is Leo Sidron and myself talking here in Brooklyn all about Huey Lewis and the news. Here we go.
Could fall forever, but you handed me an ultimatum. Took back the flowers and our hearts were made of bad concessions. Smoked up the cigarettes and added me. The Ghostbusters theme song was um, was a was a moment in history for us as kids, right? Like that was such a huge hit. Yeah. Did you know about Huey Lewis before you knew about Ray Parker Jr. and the Ghostbusters theme song? Uh, no, and no, nor did I make the connection that the two songs sounded yeah. similar. And what yeah. we're talking about here is that Ghostbusters was written by Ray Parker Jr. Apparently he came out of retirement to do this song because Huey Lewis who initially was asked to write a song for Ghostbusters, had uh, said he didn't want to do it. And he didn't want to do it because he had just submitted a song to Back to the Future, and he didn't want to get pigeonholed as, like, the soundtrack guy. Right. Which, you know, when I think about that, even that is says something about Huey and how he thought about himself. You know, like... Uh, Great soundtrack songwriters, you know, to me, I think of Randy Newman as probably the best, the, yeah. the greatest, who proudly is the soundtrack guy. Absolutely. You know, and Huey at that time didn't see himself as the movie guy. And yeah. I, you know, I wonder. Shall I say the next Kenny Loggins? The next Kenny Loggins. You know, that's a fair point. Yeah. Maybe that's what that's he was kind of what about. Kenny Loggins turned into. Yes. Yeah. But it's, you, you know, it's not that Huey has anything to worry about. He sold a lot of records and he's still beloved. And, and you know, if he were able to to perform still he you know i'm sure he would be but yeah and i think he's working hard to try to get back to it i want i, I don't i don't know about that i want to hear about that in a minute okay. we'll get we'll get there yeah, but yeah, um yeah. but but i do think that you know being the movie guy there's nothing there there's no shame in that over time it's like it's a really it's a great way to stay relevant and connected and put your music in front of another generation of people definitely and you know Huey was a part of like the 80s generation and and they certainly were gearing themselves towards being pop artists yeah you know like the album sports which is the mm. most famous Huey yeah. Lewis record out there they put that record together with the idea we need a hit yeah. so let's just write an album full of hits yeah and little did they know that they were going to have five yes hits off of that record yeah. you know on the other side of the coin you've got the punk rockers and sort of more of like the the blue collar and and those musicians really shied away from anything commercial like having a song in a you know in a movie or a commercial so it sort of was a sign of the times back then to just be like you know what i'm gonna have some artistic integrity and i'm not gonna sell out and whatever he was making plenty of money yeah, I'm pretty I, sure he was a very savvy businessman. Very savvy, and I, I think he. When I think about Huey today, I realize he straddles the fence in a lot of ways because he's such a child of the '60s. You know, he was yeah. he was raised by bo- a bohemian mother. <laughs> yeah. He he had these like deep ties to Marin County before it was overrun with uh, tech money, and you know, I mean, it was a very kind of hippie enclave out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then he also goes to boarding school and he's, you know, highly educated. Yeah. Uh, in New Jersey, by the way, in New East Jersey, Coast, yeah. East coast. Yeah. East, well, he's born in New York. He then goes to California. So he's, he, he has kind of a relationship with both this old, yeah. East coast, uh, upper echelon education thing. And then he also has, uh, you know, he goes to eventually goes to Cornell, but he, but he's raised more or less in California, in Northern California, which mm. is kind of free range at that point. Yeah. He goes walk about. He's, he definitely, you know, he's, he wants to be a blues musician. There's a part of him that is very tied to this kind of like rejection of materialism, you know? And on the other hand, he is unabashedly a pop 
artist. Yes. You know, and interested in success and wants to sell records. And sure. It faces an enormous amount of adversity when punk music shows up because, you know, that was the one of the, his first setbacks. I know I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry. But. Yeah, no problem. This is a lot of stuff to go through. Yeah. We're going to dial it back a little bit because okay. I do we, we do want to put these things in order okay. uh, because the the history of yeah. where Huey Lewis begins yes. and ends up is, is, is quite a road. Incredible. Quite a stretch. But before we get all to, into all of that, we need to deduce what the food is going to be. And mm. I don't know. So these are the pieces that I put together to help me sort of decide. I you need to explain to me what I what the job is here. Have you listened to this podcast no. yet? Okay. All right. We got three sections. Okay. The first section okay. is we're gonna figure out what the food is. Okay. 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 And I and I I figured out something and I, I started cooking it. And okay. I, I don't know if you smelled it. I saw one thing when I walked saw in. Saw one thing. Yeah. But okay. I, okay. Well let's start off by just naming a couple of facts. Okay. Huey Lewis. Yes. Originally from the East Coast. Yes. Born in New York City. Yes. His father is Irish. Raised in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. The father and the mother meet each other. The mother, she comes from Polish descent, mm -hmm. but they're both Americans. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where he was raised initially, but the parents did split up early on in the life, and the mother stayed in California, and the father seemed to be more East Coast. So. so Huey would shuffle between both of these places, East Coast and West Coast. Huey Lewis in the News was born in San Francisco, San Francisco Bay Area. And their ties to San Francisco are like very strong. <laughs> One of the funniest things to me is, is their connection to like the San Francisco sports teams. Hmm. Huey Lewis in the news might have the world record of, of singing the most national anthems. Hmm, really? Yes. The news. Cause everybody in that band could sing really good singers. Streaming. Now, Huey Lewis in the News does not officially hold any record as to the amount of times that they've sung the national anthem. That title goes to a young lady named Capri Everett, who apparently between 2015 and 2016 sang the national anthem in 41 different languages, 76 times around the world, and therefore officially holds the Guinness World Book of Records for the most national anthems sung in their host countries in one year. That said, you go up on YouTube and you are going to find countless times where Huey Lewis in the News also has sang the coveted national anthem. And I bet you would be hard-pressed to find a more beloved 80s band to have sung such a tune. Carry on. Now, did you spend any time thinking about what food Huey Lewis could be? So many, so many kinds of foods. What do you got for me? Okay, well, first of all, because of that relationship with San Francisco... I started thinking about what would be the, you know, the food uh, of Marin County. And I actually have spent some time in Mill Valley, California, where uh, he spent time also. I don't know that area. Can you tell me about it? It's unbelievable. I mean, you go over the Golden Gate Bridge and you're kind of in a magical, really, you feel like you're in a safe space in this, in this, uh, I don't know, there's something kind of... Um, oddly spiritual about it honestly like people go there and they find themselves and yeah. and um it's on the water Sausalito's on the water so you feel peaceful there's a kind of a peace there i mean it's pretty i find it to be a pretty isolated and self-contained space and and what i have found actually 
among Bay Area musicians and particularly Marin musicians? Is, is there a little bit navel gazy and a little self-referential and kind of into their own scene, you know? Sure. Um, Anyway, there's this seafood place that I went to when I was uh, last there, which is right on the water. And I was thinking, okay, so you know what? Maybe it's just something as simple as, you know, as just oysters, you know? The seafood element is definitely a big part. Their main seafoods that they eat there are... Dungus crab. Yeah. Am I saying that right? Dungeness. Dungeness crab. Is it Dungeness? That's it's definitely spelled that way. Yeah. yeah. Sand dabs, which mm-hmm. are they're like a flat fish, kind of similar to flounder. Yeah. Bay shrimp, uh-huh. which uh some people will call chum. Uh-huh. They're just little tiny shrimps. Yeah. Most people don't really eat them, but yeah. um, you know, they yeah. do. And yeah. and they're just as good, sure. Yeah. Um, and abalone? Uh-huh. Abalone. Uh-huh. I don't know what that is. You know what that is? It's probably a fish. I think it's a fish, yeah. Definitely a fish. So what we're saying is seafood. Seafood. So seafood's a part of it, right? Definitely. Seafood's definitely a part of it. Definitely. All right, good. So I'm off to a good start here. You're off to a great start. Oh, good. (laughs) You know, these are also some clean-cut guys. I mean, honestly, these are people who, look, make references to their love of, like, golf. and you know, (laughs) Yes. They're the original Hootie and the Bluefish. Yeah, exactly. There is something about that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Blue-eyed soul guys, but, you know, so they're not afraid of a little upscale food, I think. There's, there's part of that, too. Yeah. I I disagree. I, I think that they're a little bit more blue-collar. Really? Because they're happy to be in a regular sports bar. Right. You know what I mean? They're San Francisco Giants fans. Uh, you feel like they put in the work. Yeah. They clock in. They're yeah. not phoning it in. Yeah. They weren't given any favors. That's right. When you look into the the musical background of the news, yeah. I mean, it's it's a solid band, hardworking band, really coming from the bottom yeah. and just growing it from the top with yeah. like savvy business moves yeah. and great music and a smarts that yeah. trims the fat, yeah. you know, gets right down to like what, you know, what are people going to be into? Yeah, but you know what else though? They do, and I don't know how this influences the food choice, they... I think Trojan horse style sneak in a lot of harmony into their music. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know that you can get away with as many sus chords and odd harmonic twists today in pop music that they got away with. Yeah. And still have a hit. Well, rarely do you have that many good singers in a band to be able to do more than just three notes. That's right. So that's deep, rich chords. So I don't know if that plays into the thinking about the food at all or not. I like that. I like that you say, you know, at the end of the day, this is a working band. These are people who work. Yes. Um, you know what I'm, I'm going to, I think that what the point that you're making is a very valid point. And and that did contribute to why I went the the direction that I went into. Now there is a dish in San Francisco that Mm. the locals might make fun of a little bit, mm-hmm. but people go there and there's yeah. a particular restaurant that everybody loves to yeah. go. And, and San Francisco yeah. is definitely restaurant culture. Yeah, People frequently travel to San Francisco in order to test out all the restaurants that they have there. One of these restaurants really does the best job of taking an East Coast staple, which is mm. New England clam chowder, yes. and stuffing it inside of a very San Francisco sourdough Bread bowl. Uh huh. So they put clam chowder in this bread bowl. Yeah. Now, Huey Lewis in the News is a little more complex than that. And there's a lot of seafood to choose from. So we are doing a multi seafood chowder inside of a sourdough bread bowl. And that's, that's what we have. Huey Lewis in the News. Seafood chowder in a sourdough bread bowl. Here we go. We can work it out. I know it's getting hard. 
Dude, that's, section that's one. awesome. I love that because it's East Coast and West Coast coming together. Exactly. It's Huey Lewis encapsulated. Also, I'm realizing as I talk to you that I have been fixating, like probably so many fans before, on Huey Lewis and yeah. not the news. That the news... The news is such a big component that you don't have one without the other. Truly. You know, because uh, Huey Lewis has been at this a long time. Hugh Anthony Craig III. That is his proper name. So Hugh is in there. Hugh, <laughs> yeah, Hugh's in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Hugh Anthony Craig III did take some time to carve out the proper stage name that we know him now as Huey Lewis. The very first time he used this stage name was with his band Clover. However, the spelling was completely different. H-U-G-H-I-E, Huey, and Lewis spelled like L-O-U-I-S. From what I can tell, the first time that the proper spelling of Huey Lewis as we know it was used is when he played harmonica on Thin Lizzy's breakthrough live album, Live and Dangerous. Did you know that he played harmonica on a Thin Lizzy record? So as clean cut and proper as Huey Lewis is known, he's always had a bit of an edge. Carry on. Born in New York City, raised by the Grateful Dead hippies, the Acid Takers, which was his mother. His mother and father, they, they split up, and she was right there at the forefront of, like, the beat generation. So all the beat poets were heading out over there, hanging out in their house, along with members of the Grateful Dead and uh, the big acid taker guy. Mm -hmm. Tim, Tim Leary. Tim Leary, hanging around the house. Oh, yeah. So this sort of has a double effect on Huey. Huey's like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can get it. But he was also really smart. You know, I, I didn't realize and sometimes i think we don't realize how smart our favorite you know artists and musicians are like sure. he was like super smart perfect sat score like wow 800 really? 800 on the math on the ac no on the sat yeah. yeah super smart so that's why i think he's right in the middle you know like he lives in two worlds he lives in this hippie world he lives in this counterculture world and then he also ultimately becomes mainstream culture changes mainstream culture craves yeah. being a part of mainstream culture as you said wanted to write hits yes but also like having this grounding you know yeah. because he had his mother doing all of this yeah. stuff and then he had his father yeah. who like sent him to prep school yeah. so he's you know like wearing a uniform yeah. maybe it was an all-boys school i think it was an all-boys school at the time yeah i think it was um and between these two things he sort of like has the opportunity to test out all these different lifestyle choices yeah, yeah. and realizes, you know what? I'm not sure if I'm into the hippie music and really gravitates towards soul music, yes. R and B blues. Like that is what really moves him yeah. as a child. Uh, so he, he starts growing older and as he graduates high school, which he graduates early because he skips second grade. Yeah. That's how smart this kid is. Uh, I think he graduates at age 16. Yeah. He's done. Yeah. It's kind of crazy when you think the choices that you make as a seven year old, will actually spin <laughs> yeah. your life in a certain direction, right? That's right. Um, so his father, he says, in my last command for you, mm -hmm. my son, mm -hmm. and what you're going to be doing with your life before you go to college, yeah. you don't know what you're going to do. Yeah. Take a year off and go to Europe. Spend yes. a year in Europe. Yeah. Now, what he doesn't do is give him a ticket to go to Europe. Yeah. He just says, he just says do this. You go should to Europe. do this. Yeah. Figure out yeah. how you're going to get to Europe. Yeah. You know, it's it, in in some ways it's funny because uh, it seems like such an act of 
white privilege to do this to your child, you know, in the 60s, send your kid to Europe or whatever. Yeah. Or today. Or today. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But there's also something so old school and classic and traditional going all the way back across the world to sending young men into the into the the jungle or this <laughs> or wherever and just like find, find your yourself. way yeah find yes. yourself and find your way home you know yeah 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 it's almost kind of mythical it is and i mean it's still i think one of the best things you can do for a person yeah yeah first off he had to hitchhike from san francisco to new york unbelievable and yeah he got to new york city yeah and then did the stowaway which yeah. apparently is you just show up and you don't have a ticket. And this yeah. is back in the 60s, right? Yeah. So they don't have computers yet. They Apparently, they would just mark your name down if you're going to get on the plane. And somehow you could sneak on the plane. I don't quite understand how you could do that. But somehow he got on the plane. And on his way to New York City from San Francisco, one of the people that he got a ride from had given him the advice on how to do this, mm-hmm. that you go there, you go in early, so that you can get into the boarding area without being conspicuous so people don't notice that you're there. And then you just get on the plane and when they would mark how many people are on the plane, uh, they would be one person off, but whoever was doing it wouldn't care. It'd be like, well, we'll just, we probably just yeah. miscounted. Yeah. And, the, and then the plane would take off anyway. <laughs> yes. And so that's how we got on it the plane. Simp- simpler times. <sighs> simpler times. Man, oh man. Uh, and inevitably, he said, back in those days, the planes weren't always all full. So yeah. he, would, he would like pick a, a seat in the middle or that's what he would write on his ticket. And then meanwhile, he would sit in different seats. And if someone said, oh, that's my seat, be like, oh, I'm sorry, I must be back there. And then he'd go back like three seats and just keep doing it until he, he just lucked out in an empty seat. You know, I think he also has that kind of winning smile and that kind of Archie Bunker kind of vibe. Such a lovable charm. It's not Archie Bunker. It's Archie. Archie from the Archies? No, what is it? What, what am I thinking Archies of? There? You know, Ron Howard... Uh... Opie. Opie kind of vibe. It's, but you know what? Can I, can we, can we kill that? Because all I right. do think he, I think he has that kind of all American smile, winning smile, you know? And I think For if sure. he was like, oh ma'am, I'm sorry, you're right. I'm in the wrong seat. They oh, probably yeah. would have just like let him. Uh, For sure. You know, let him get away with it. The kid's a charmer. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he brings all of his necessary items, including a couple of harmonicas and he goes to Europe and more or less just travels around Europe, earning money, playing a harmonica. Yeah. Just doing a lot of busking. And yeah. if you don't know what busking is, that's standing on the street with a bucket playing the harmonica. Hmm. Um, and along his way, I think along the way, he met another musician who was in sort of the same boat. So they sort of paired up and mm-hmm. kind of played with each other um, and had all of these great experiences while he was there. there and in fact, he ran into somebody in some country. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, this is so vague, but this was just telling him his story. Mm-hmm. And he said, we should set you up a concert. And so they set up a concert for him and put together a band and got 3,000 people to go to this concert for this kid because they were just charmed with Americans at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and San Francisco also, because you know he was right in the middle of all this stuff. So obviously the stories that he had to tell about the Grateful Dead and Timothy Leary were really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so all of these Europeans were just gathering around this you know, Huey Lewis character. And he said he had an amazing show. And that's where he really got the bug. He said, I think this is going to be my career path yeah. doing this. Yeah. So, you know, his year is up. He goes back to New York City and uh, starts to go to Cornell. Yeah. He said he claims he spent five minutes in class mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the rest of his time putting together bands and just playing music. Yeah. And eventually he kind of realizes this is not going to be my path. I need to be doing music. He goes back to San Francisco and hooks up with this band Clover. Yes legendary band yeah. not in its time no 
But ever since, a very legendary band. Um, it features him as well as a fellow named John McPhee, who is an original member of Clover, who went on to be in the Doobie Brothers after the Clover's demise. But he was in good company. Although Huey Lewis was not an original member of Clover, they were initially a four-piece, which, which featured John McPhee as well as a fellow named Alex Call. So they started out as this four-piece. Eventually, they expand into a six-piece, and they bring in Huey Lewis, as well as uh, keyboardist Sean Hopper, mm-hmm. a future member of Huey Lewis in the News. So as a six-piece, they traveled to the UK with hopes of becoming the next big thing. And they even get the attention of Vertigo Records. So the problem is, is as they get there and they're making their debut, the exact same time punk rock happens. Many times it's clearly, and it is interesting, as you and I, I think, have gone through a little bit of the process of hearing Huey ta- tell his story. Yes. Where you learn just like listening to your parents tell a story or something. Yes. I, I guess inevitably it happens to all of us. This, he's, he's told it enough times. He knows what the line is. You know, <laughs> yeah. I got to England and the day we arrived, Johnny Rotten spits in the, uh, in the face of an NME reporter. And that was, it, that was it. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Absolutely. We were making cool, polished breezy music and that's not what they wanted to hear yes but they were fortunate enough to have the ear of stiff records and nick lowe and this new artist elvis costello Mm -hmm. they had signed elvis costello on to be a songwriter Mm -hmm. they weren't even planning on him being an artist he was going to be writing songs with nick lowe's partner in rock pile dave edmonds so dave edmonds didn't really like elvis costello but in the meantime, Elvis had written all these songs, so yeah. they just said, why don't you just demo these songs? Yeah. We've got this band over from America. We'll put you guys together in a room. We'll have mm-hmm. Nick Lowe produce it, and we'll see what we do. Mm-hmm. With very low expectations. And this album ends up being My Aim is True. Mm-hmm. My Aim is True produces a lot of great songs, including Watching the Detectives and one of his signature songs, Allison. Mm-hmm. And this album has its own sound, and it's very distinct from anything that comes after in Elvis Costello's arsenal, because eventually Elvis brings on the attractions, and they have a little bit more of a punk edge and a new-agey thing. But at this point in time, it's Clover, and Clover is kind of a clean band. They're from San Francisco. I kind of equate them mostly with, like, CCR. Mm -hmm. I think they sound like it's kind of a softened CCR. Have you listened to Clover? You know what? I haven't. I've heard their name for years, and I never bothered to listen to Cl- what Clover was. And I know Mutt Lang produced some of their records. Yes. I mean, l- incredible producer who produced everything from ACDC to Shania Twain and everything yes. in between. You know? I mean, Mutt Lang has become like a, a, a factor that weaves in with most of the bands I've done on here. Really? Foreigner. Yeah. God name it. I mean, we haven't done Def Leppard yet, but yep. you know, eventually he's going to be a big part. Yeah. Oh God, he he just had his paws and everything. He really did, and I think that his sound. I mean, this is like a little bit of a digression, but I do feel that, and I don't know if you relate to this. We're about the same age. There, the Mutlang sound became almost a, like a dirty secret if you liked it. At a certain point, there was, I think, like a twenty-year window, which is basically the first couple of decades of of the twenty-first century, where it was not cool to dig that clean, polished pop sound that, yeah. you know, that basically I think you could distill down to the Mutt Lang sound in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And now 
it's super cool to dig it. Like now it's, you know, and maybe that's just the historical cycle. You just need 20 years of distance between anything to like. Of course. But it's never cool to like the clean stuff. Exactly. And it's never cool to like the stuff from 10 years ago. It's cool to like the stuff from 30 years ago. Yes. Yes. And now that everything's having the 30th anniversary. Exactly. More stuff needs to happen in this time period. That's right. (laughs) But yeah, man, that Mutt Lang clean sound is so, you know, probably one of the most informative like elements when I think about what I loved when I was for a kid. sure, for sure. I mean, it also cannot be dismissed. Uh, Mutt Lang's contribution to the the song craft as well. Yes. Like he had his hand in writing a lot of these songs, including Hugh Lewis and the News's first hit, which is off their second record, which is "Do You Believe in Love." Mutt Lang single handedly wrote that tune as as sort of a gift as Huey Lewis was like really <laughs> looking for a for a single needing a single yeah. absolutely and so you know considering where Huey Lewis was coming from from his first and second record and this hit being the first hit i think it sort of created the bedrock for mm. them to understand what a hit sounds like mm-hmm. and what it is they need to do and they so they could do that you know who i was thinking about today is billy joel's band mm. which is also a working class band mostly from long island oh, yes. of high of highly accomplished musicians who basically came out of their own version of pub rock. Everybody talks about the pub rock scene that Clover was going to be a part of in England. And I feel like the equivalent of that is maybe what was going on like in the, on the Island in Long Island, you know, these guys that were just playing the bars and could play really beautifully together and had a conception. Perfect. That is the perfect parallel. Those two bands. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Billy Joe might have just had one step earlier than than Huey yeah. Lewis did, but you know, Huey Lewis obviously caught up very quickly. Yep. Um, and the news, we'll get to them. Yep. So Clover, after trying their darndest, they've got Mutt Lang making their records. They're just not getting the success they want. Yeah. So the band dissolves. Yeah. And John McPhee joins the Doobie Brothers, and their lead singer, Alex Call, ends up becoming a songwriter. He moves to Nashville, hmm. and he writes a number of great songs, including the song uh, 8675309. Oh, that's a f- classic song. Yeah, a song that, do you know the name of the band that did it? I don't. Nope, but we know, the, <laughs> we know that number. How many, op- how many times do yeah. you know a number? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It is hard to write a song with a number in it that sticks, you know? It's like, write a song about a number— you know, if you and I tried to string seven numbers together, we probably would not walk out with a hit. But yeah, not a hit. It ma- it does matter which numbers you choose, you know? I think so, yeah. And and somebody tried to auction that number off for $70,000 at one point, uh, mm. but uh, that, that eBay bid was yeah. uh, terminated because I you're not allowed to. Sell a sell number. A phone number. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, that's what the other those members of Clover mm-hmm. do. And then Huey Lewis and uh, Sean, they head back over to San Francisco and kind of start all over again. Mm-hmm. Huey Lewis ends up working at this club where there, there's, a, there's a, a Monday night thing going on. So Huey says, we're going to do like a Monday night live, they call it. And just at that exact same time, there is another band called Soundhole mm-hmm. who features Mario Cipollino mm-hmm. as well as Bill Gibson mm. and Johnny Cola. Those Three are some badass guys. Badass guys. Three guys that eventually join Huey Lewis's band. But in the meantime, these three guys, their band, before breaking up, they were the backing band for Van Morrison for mm. a little bit. 
I think Soundhole makes sense as a band name, but I don't like the way it makes me feel. It it's a little it's a feels heartening. Feels worse than it should for some reason. For sure, yeah. It's like I feel like they got something by you by using that word. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, Soundhole is acceptable. It's a part of the instrument it's, that you it, play, but yeah. it just doesn't. It's yeah, it's a little dirty. It feels it feels raunchier close. than it I think it wants to. For sure. Huey starts up Monday Night Live and needs to put together a band. Sean Hopper's still around, and these Soundhole guys are there, and they say, hey, why don't you come on down? We're going to have this jam session. And this is like pretty much like an open mic. You know, they're doing, they're doing the standards, blues, mm-hmm. you know, and they all have a mutual deep love for R&B music mm-hmm. and for soul music. They were all listening to the same soul radio station. There, apparently there was a radio station that was a subsidiary of a radio station in Memphis. Mm. Obviously, Memphis was playing all the stack stuff, and they were the first ones to do it. And so, therefore, this subsidiary was kind of the first one that was playing, like, these stack soul mm. records back in those days. It's kind of funny to think that there was a time when you just couldn't hear everything all the time, no matter where you were in the world, right? right? And we're of that generation that yeah. had to go through those trials and tribulations. I am really thinking about getting a CD player, like a CD walk disc man, yeah. and going back <laughs> to that. Because... I loved diving deep into records. And I, and as I think about Huey Lewis and the number of times I flipped the cassette over mm. on my copy of sports yeah, and knew every, I forgot how well I knew that record. It's because it's like one of a handful of things that I had to listen to. And, you know, totally. you would listen over and over and over again. Yes. So, yes, we, we rode the wave of transition. For sure. Like, in those days, you had to commit to something. Yeah. You had to put, like, eight ninety nine down. Or if a CD, you know, $12.99, $13.99, and, you know, your fingers were crossed that there was going to be more than two good songs But even it. if they sucked, you would still listen to them because you put your money down. You Damn know? straight. Like, I got to find some yeah. enjoyment out of this thing. <laughs> I had to I had to deliver a lot of newspapers to get to get thing. that yep, exactly. Yep, so yep, there's totally. there's something real about that. And Absolutely. So it's it it is kind of like as many times as I've heard stories like that about the radio station that people listen to and how they discovered it or the you know whatever somebody gave them a copy of a record whatever it is. Yes. It only over time is it resonating with me what that really represents. Like how lucky were they yeah. that there was that radio station subsidiary of the of the memphis station that played the stacks record absolutely and would there be a huey lewis in the news without that you know it's as i'm doing the history of all of these bands it's amazing how often that is sort of that middle point for these groups uh there's a band neutral milk hotel like there was a college radio station that all of those guys sort of hubbed around uh the band same sort of thing like Levon Helm, as yeah. well as the guys up in Canada, could yeah. get like the same radio station yeah. and sort of hear like this old timey country, yeah. country western stuff that inspired everything that they were doing. Yeah. So yeah, we don't have that today. It matters what you love. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's like the takeaway. Is like it does matter what you listen to because it's yes. going to affect what you what comes back out. Absolutely, yes, and you know, thankfully they had that at their disposal to yep. hear that stuff and yep. to connect and bond and over. respond to it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So Monday Night Live is happening, and uh, it's a big success. They've got comedians coming down. They have uh, guest musicians come down. Van Morrison comes down wow. and plays a song with them. Um, I think Emmylou Harris might come down and do a song with them from time to time. And, they, Hugh, and Huey's like, is he transitioning here? He's like, really, he's been a primarily a harmonica player until now. He's still kind of a harmonica player. Yeah. But he was singing a couple of songs yeah. even when he was in Clover. So Dave Edmonds wants to record a Huey Lewis song that he wrote when he was in Clover called something. 
Yes, it's true. Huey Lewis wrote this song called Bad Is Bad. Dave Edmonds had heard it from back in the Clover days, wanted to record it, and actually invited Huey Lewis to play backing harmonica on it. So Bad Is Bad was later slowed down and recorded for a Huey Lewis album proper. But before then, Clover did it like this. In the process of this, sort of gives like Huey some notice within the industry mm-hmm. that he wrote this decent song. So they start checking out what Huey's up to. And like while he's in this meeting, he's like, hey, check out this little song that we do. And it's a song called Exo Disco. Mm-hmm. Exco Disco is Huey Lewis's uh, merging the melody theme to Exodus and turning it into a disco song. It was just some dumb joke thing that they did, but it sounded really good. So they played a version for the Chrysalis Records people and they said, that's great. We want that. So they send them the tape that they had recorded and somebody accidentally recorded over top of it, a little piece. And when they came back, they said, oh, I'm so sorry, Huey. Somebody accidentally recorded over top of it. He's like, oh, well, we need more studio time. We have to go back in. We have to re-record everything. It's going to take a week. This is a straight-up hustle. Straight-up hustle. So they say, all right, we're so sorry. So they get down there, and Huey takes the regular tape that they've already recorded, not the multi-track, and basically put it on to a, a, a multi-track yeah. and just you know bounces the thing that they had. They're and done. adds vocals. Adds vocals. And now they have four days of yeah. studio time. Yeah. So in this time, they record a couple of other demos. Yeah. And uh, the Chrysalis Records people really liked it. Yeah. But the whole time, Huey is always like working it. And they say, we, we, want, we want this. But Huey said, like, talk to somebody else. And he said, well, we're not going unless we get X amount of points and X amount of this. Yeah. And he makes sure that he walks away with like a decent record deal. He yeah. was smart enough, yeah. business savvy enough to, to make sure that he wasn't going to get screwed. Now, I don't mean to be like armchair psychologist, but I do think that when you take a kid who basically was set free into the world, at 16, who spent his life being shuttled between different worlds and learning how to like adapt. This is a person who ultimately is a survivor. For sure. You know? And if you're going to get your hands on a record deal, you're going to get your hands on the deal that you want. And yeah. like, and I, th- I think about those kinds of moves that he made, which is a kind of like, I don't give a damn. Like I'm going to, I'm going to get this. I'm going to do this for me. Yeah. It takes a certain kind of person to do that. Sure. I mean, it takes a certain kind of person to devote themselves to playing, you know, music for a living anyway. Or being a harmonica player. I mean, how many harmonica players out there that have been successful? Totally. There's some. There's I could I could list, list them on five hands. Yeah. One hand. I on could list five them on, hands. Yeah. And I want that be nice. Uh, but yeah, but I mean I, I do think that there's a kind there's a you he kind of reveals himself in a way when he tells these stories about whether or not it's kind of faking his way, you know, stowing away on the way on the airplane or yeah. kind of convincing the label that he needs more money and more time than he really does and, and using that to make a convincing demo. All of that stuff is an example of how he 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 was crafty, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and not to mention the fact that Huey was kind of put on the spot because the other members of his band were securing really cool other side gigs. Mm. Their bass player, Mario Cipollina, has been accepted as the bass player of Foreigner after working really hard. Apparently, they had auditioned about 200 people to be the bass player, and he is a heck of a bass player. Not to mention the coolest-looking bass player on planet Earth. I think that he formed what we all envision bass players to be. Hmm. A guy wearing a suit mm -hmm. in the back with a tie, mm -hmm. sunglasses, cigarette hanging out of the mouth, mm -hmm. just laying it down. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't see him, you wouldn't even know he's there because mm -hmm. he's playing so well. Yes. It just, it's, there's, yes. it just sits on the bottom. Yes. Pocket player. Great musician. He goes to New York City and uh, realizes that him in New York City could be very dangerous. Mm. Um, he's spending a few too many nights in like hotel rooms and mm. indulging in the things that New York City's indulges in and, and decides, you know, if, I think if I'm going to live longer than age 35, mm -hmm. I should probably get back to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So he comes back to San Francisco, and luckily enough, Huey Lewis has secured this record deal. And on the other side, Johnny Cola mm -hmm. was playing with and arranging for Sly and the Family Stone. Incredible. Right? It's insane. Also a good gig. I mean, Sly, I saw Sly was paraded out into the, onto the Grammy stage or something in our lifetime. Yeah. You know, in the last 10 years. It felt like there was a moment where he was going to have a comeback. Yeah. But then, like, he kind of, like, got on the, the front of the stage, yeah. did half a tune, and then said, that's enough for it's me. That's enough, Turned yeah. Around, yeah. <laughs> and we haven't heard from him yeah, since. Yeah, he had to go back from his comeback. Yeah, exactly. But that does kind of speak, I think, also to the San Francisco scene, which, like, ultimately... You know, we, there's a whole other podcast which probably exists, and if not, you know, needs to exist, just about that interaction between, I mean, ultimately what we're talking about is black music and what, non-black music? I yeah, mean, the, well, the, the, inter the genesis of rock and roll, yeah. more or less, as yes. we know it. Yes. Yeah. But, but like that, you know, uh, like I... You know, I talked to David Garibaldi, the drummer in Tower Power, for my podcast, and, we, and he talked a lot about how the East Bay which is the other side of San Francisco was such a cultural melting pot and how they were all hearing all this music, Latin music and the soul music and rock and roll music and jazz and, and also all the, the folk stuff that was going on, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was all be kind of thrown into the same chowder of music, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think the idea that you have at the same time, the bass player who's jo joining this mainstream pop band and the saxophone player who's playing with Sly and the Family Stone mm -hmm. kind of informs what becomes the sound, you know, For sure. of Huey Lewis in the News. Yes, absolutely. All of these elements, because, you know, I had made a joke actually about Huey Lewis in the News. Mm -hmm. And to me, it just like their sound is so, I don't know, wow. the, the way I was feeling at the time was yeah. just very plain mm. because their, their sound is very clean. Mm -hmm. Like these guys, they don't, they don't have any tattoos. Mm. You know, the, they're clearly older than everybody else that's doing music. Totally. They're like in their thirties when they have their yeah. success. Yeah. Yeah. Well, half of them. Uh -huh. um, Mario is very young. Oh, really? Yeah. He's in his, he's in his early twenties uh -huh. where everyone else is in their early thirties. Got it. So that's what's going on at that point in time. Um, but it's funny because Mario looks like the oldest guy in the group. <laughs> He's like <laughs> taller and lurchy and yeah. smoking a cigarette and who cares. But lo and behold, they put together their first record and uh, their first record's a little kind of punk. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it, it didn't yield any hits. Yeah. All the songs are credited to Huey Lewis and like all the mm -hmm. members of the Huey Lewis yeah. in the news. So it's, it's a band writing thing. Uh, but I wonder if part of that is 
being influenced by the experience that Huey had in England. Like when, when I listen to those first records, I think, mm-hmm. is he trying to figure out how to take what he does and make it appealing to an audience that also is listening to punk or new wave music, you know, because sure. that's what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, how, how else do you, I mean, because Huey is sort of recovering yeah. from being rejected. Exactly. It's, it's impossible that he's not going to like try to add an element of that just yeah. to be like, Hey guys, look, I can, I can do it too. Oh, yeah, see? <laughs> <laughs> totally. And, and that record's not bad, yeah. but Huey will be the first to tell you, like, I'm still learning how to sing yeah. at this point. And, and you go back to that early stuff and you really find the spirit. Yeah. Of what could have been, what like the multi-directions that they could have gone. Totally. And kind of have gone in sub- subsequent years. But it seems like what you, you're suggesting is that that one Mutt Lang song gave them a blueprint that they later on, because that came right at the right moment for them, where they were a little bit lost at sea, like, what's our sound going to be? What are we going to be? Mutt Lang gives them a hit and goes, this is a hit. Yep. And they learn from that hit. Yes. And they create that Huey Lewis in the News backing vocal sound. Yeah. Which is, you know, very distinct, very indescribable. It's those voices, and they create a sound yeah. like the Beach Boys yes. or like the Cars backing vocals. It's it's you know totally. it's it is their it is their stamp. It's yeah. the news. You don't have it, Huey Lewis, without, without those clean clean voices. It's tr- it is true, and I hadn't. Sometimes you don't realize, and I think that's like even your comment about how they were clean. You know. You know how hard it is to make clean music that's good? Like, sure. it's not, I mean, we think it's, you know, it's like somehow it's lacking an ingredient, you know? Totally. Like, like have, people have to go out of the way to make it dirty. Yeah. It's like, no, it starts out dirty. It starts You've got out to scrub dirty. all that stuff out. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it, the same thing with comedy, you know, like doing clean comedy can be the most difficult thing to do. Very difficult, exactly. Yeah. And you have to be very intentional about it. And, and also to make people rock while making clean music is a major challenge. Absolutely. And nobody is better at that than Mutt Lang. Yeah. You know, take a look at those ACDC records. Yes. I mean, their biggest hits were the Mutt Lang things. Yeah. I mean, they're rocking, yeah. but you can hear every single guitar note. Totally. You know, you can hear every voice, every drum hit, everything is just in the right place. And, you know, that's not easy to do. And the Huey Lewis thing, too, it, there is a lot of electric guitar on those records, you know? Yeah. I never think of them as an, a guitar band. Yeah. So many of the hits on sports have synth bass, and on recent listening, are also total drum machine tracks. Like you, you, I forgot at the time how much Lindrum is on those records on, really? on sports. Yeah. Oh, wow. And like, if you listen again by four, the next record, there's live drums on it. Most okay. of it, but on sports, like at least half of those tunes is Lindrum and then dr- live drum fills on top of it. Oh, wow. Which very eighties. So eighties. And, <laughs> but like, so, okay. So you've got like drum machine and synth and all this stuff going on. And then, you know, so it's easy to overlook the fact that there's all this, there's a lot of crunchy guitar on it too. Yes. yes. It, and know. might I say saxophone. Mm. And maybe that's where I'm like, these guys are clean. Saxophone, saxophone. is it's a tricky, tricky thing. You know, <laughs> well, for, fortunately and unfortunately, it's good saxophone. I mean, it he's is. a great saxophone player. The sax, the horn arrangements are great. Johnny Cola, formerly of Sly and the Family Stone, apparently. <laughs> Super. I mean, really, real saxophone is being played on on this yeah. record. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did you first hear about Huey Lewis in the news? It's, it's, it's like, it's hard to identify a moment, you know, because I think he just was like, really was the soundtrack to so much of my childhood. For sure. But I have a couple memories. I mean, I remember seeing, I want to do the, I want a new drug video for sure. And I think part of what was so stunning about that video or so like 
I don't know, exciting about it is that he's on the road like you've never heard of him before and yet the video seems to suggest that he's already famous and so you're like this you know yeah totally so i remember watching me like who is this who is this guy like i guess i don't i need even as a kid Bon jovi did the same thing totally he's like he's playing on a giant auditorium you know stage and it's just like wow these people really seem to like this guy he's giving high fives exactly everyone loves him i'm late to the party like (laughs) i I guess this is like this is a cool band to like you know Yep. So I do remember watching that video and being like, oh, who is this? And um, I there is a, a little bit of a weird, I don't know when this became a part of it, but um, like a really good family friend of mine is a bass player from the Bay Area who is like tangentially, I mean, not even so tangentially, connected to the cl- like Clover and that whole scene. He's a, he's a bass player named Michael White, and he married my mom's college roommate. So okay. just coincidentally, she ended up living in Marin and we would go visit when I was a kid and he like knew all those guys and would talk. So I would hear just in the background about how like Michael knew, yeah. you know, Huey Lewis and he knew those guys. So there was a part of me that always felt like I was just within like just within reach of <laughs> kind of knowing them a little bit, which also makes it really cool. Because yeah. it's like, I mean, I didn't know them. I just knew a guy who knew them, sure, you know, but absolutely. it was like it was that it was just that close. And. And, um, I feel that way about Butch Vig. Totally. It's like, I'm just so close to being yeah. able to say I'm friends with him. That you can celebrate all the victories and you can sort of yes. be like, it, it must meet, it's got to have rubbed off on me somehow just yeah. being in that proximity. Totally. You know? But anyways. So I do I'm remember that. Yeah. I do remember that. And I remember that by um, by the time I was 10 or 11, I briefly hosted a children's radio show on WORT in Madison, oh, Wisconsin. There was oh four God. episodes of it. All right. And um, <laughs> that's awesome. It was super fun. And part of my job was Did you I, play any Weird Al Yankovic? No. Okay. I got to choose one song each episode okay. for four episodes. All right. And two of the songs that I chose were Huey Lewis songs. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So by the time I was like 10 or 11, I was like massive. You know, that was, I thought, yeah, the coolest you were, music. You were, you were backing him at this point. I was behind him. Totally. Awesome. I don't know what Huey Lewis fans are called. I don't know if they have a name. Newsies or something. <laughs> oh, man. But whatever it was, I was definitely one of them. All right. Nice. Now, for me, I feel like... Yeah, what about you? I feel like Do You Believe in Love was already sort of ingrained in my head yeah. at some point. Like, yeah. I didn't. you didn't even notice it because it's so clean. Um, but it was on the radio and it was happening, you know, in between like, uh, different cuts of like Rio and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Duran Duran songs <laughs> totally. and, and, uh, wasn't really making a lasting impression, but yep. then all of a sudden, uh, the, the heart of rock and roll yes. touched me. Yeah. It's a great, great song. Um, and it was one of these songs because back in the day, you know, my folks, they wouldn't buy me diddly squat. Yeah. So I didn't have any CDs. Like I yeah. would get, I would get tape cassettes from uncles. So yeah. I had the first police Cool. The rec, uh, tape cassette, yeah. the first Bill Cosby, yeah. no, no comment. The first uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen's mm-hmm. Born to Run, and that was sort of, th- those are my opportunities wow. to listen to recorded music. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, I had a tape cassette recorder, so I would get tapes and I would just sit adamantly listening to the radio, trying to record my favorite tunes. Totally. And the best was if I was recording something and then a tune I wanted would just show up and yeah. I had the beginning of it. Yeah. Oh my God, it was yeah. the greatest. I yeah. can still, in my head, hear You Shook Me All Night Long yeah. segueing into Cult of Personality 
And I was like, oh my God, I have cult of personality from beginning to end. I was so happy. Um, but one I could never get was Heart of Rock and Roll. Yeah. I could always just get the end of it. I would find it. Yeah. And then I'd hear him talking about naming all the cities. I could never get it. So I think that that song, Heart of Rock and Roll, also speaks to a time in popular music when the contemporary music, the music that was on the radio, was nostalgic for the music of the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And so there are all these songs that talked about rock and roll and what rock yeah. and roll was, you know? Sure. Billy Joel had one. Yeah. He had a couple of them, but... Um, yeah. Sure. And the, the Straight Cats were yeah, sort of totally. carrying that banner at that point. Yeah, yeah definitely, especially for like the rockabilly 50s stuff. Yeah. But Heart of Rock and Roll was sort of the right ingredients of yeah. that early rock and roll and that polished sound and what was happening on MTV. That's the big part about yeah. this band. Is like yeah. MTV and Huey Lewis and the News are happening at the exact same yeah. time. And Huey Lewis really understood what it was to make a good video. And it wasn't about spending a lot of money. Yeah, They're, They talk about their first two videos and how much money they spent on it and said, what a waste of time. Yeah. And there on in, they started to produce their own videos. Yeah. They would just call the local college station and have them come in and, you know, pay them mice nuts and use the ideas that they had, including like what, burying members of in the sand, in the sand and have their heads pop back. Yeah. That whole thing is also part of the spirit, which is oddly, I mean, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but it's kind of punk about what they did in that they really insisted on being in, in charge of what what they made yeah they DIY, produced man. their diy they produced their own records they took yep. the money from the label and they produced their own records they took the money and they produced their own videos they internally tended to write most of the material themselves mm -hmm. they were in control of this brand of this I, this this music that they made which is like they may have made low budget videos but like the records are very produced yeah. considering they did it themselves not low budget at all no yeah no I mean, sports is a masterpiece. I mean, to me, even though they say it's a, a an album of singles, which, yeah. I mean, it's pretty much a best of, yeah. you know, when you listen to it. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it feels cohesive to me. Yeah. You know, but I think it's just because it's, we've listened to it so, so many, many times. times. But also, like, are you not just so surprised when you look at a record and you're like, this is a massive record filled with hit songs. And it's like, there's nine songs on this record. Yeah. <laughs> because that's how long an album was. Exactly. Back You've got maybe 17 and a half minutes to, to yeah. fill up. Yeah. So everyone is loving Huey Lewis, the news, including <laughs> the makers of ghostbusters. Oh, right. Oh, we haven't even gotten, I haven't even yet. gotten to ghostbusters. So Ivan Reitman and co they start making ghostbusters. And this is the story. They're cutting the, the takes of Ghostbusters to Huey Lewis music yeah. without asking Huey yeah. Lewis if they can use it. They're just yeah. like, well, hopefully. You know, and it seems pretty clear to me that one of the songs they're, they're cutting to is... Uh, I want a new drug. I want a new drug. So they get down <laughs> to it. They say, hey, Huey, we really love your music. Do you think that you would contribute a song to our, our soundtrack? And Huey, as we discussed before, doesn't want to be pigeonholed as a movie guy. He says, no, thank you. So they dig up, out of retirement, Ray Parker Jr., Wonderful guitar player. Mm. He's a studio guy. He's had some hits in the 70s. I forget what the band, uh, um, my favorite song is, uh, You Can't Change That. Do, do, do. Great tune. You know that tune? I should, I really should know. You're the Ray only Parker. one I need. Who did he play with? Because he's, he's so important. He's actually a, like a legendary guy, but why don't we not know who he played with? Let us wonder no more, ladies and gentlemen. Ray Parker Jr., born in Detroit. To Vanolia and Ray Parker Sr., of course. 
A young Ray started to play the clarinet at age six. Showing many talents and musical aspirations, he co-wrote songs with Marvin Gaye at age 16. His guitar playing was described as choppy in a good way, and he was officially a studio musician for the Holland Doisier Holland stable, who did a lot of songs for Motown. His very first hit was co-written by Shaka Khan, recorded by their band Rufus, tune called You've Got the Love. I'm sure you've heard that one. And then the guy did session work for The Carpenters, Bill Cosby, The Supremes, Aretha Franklin, Denise Williams, Bill Withers, Michael Henderson, Jean-Luc Pontier, The Temptations, Boss Gags, da 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 Tina Turner, Dan Ross, da-da-da-da, it just goes on. Everybody. After Ghostbusters, he writes and produces hits for New Edition, including Mr. Telephone Man. Denise Williams, and Diana Ross. And he wrote and recorded a bunch of tunes for LaToya Jackson's debut album. Remember that one? Yeah, me either. So, a brief look into the life of Ray Parker Jr. Carry on. Well, I think Ghostbusters sort of clouded anything that happened before. Right. But anyways, got a good check out of it. Totally. We think. It's hard to say. He does make some money. Listen in. <laughs> so, so eventually, you know, the song Ghostbuster comes out and uh, it's uh, very similar to I Want a New Drug. I didn't realize that in real time. Me neither. Yeah. Well, you were, that's the song you wanted to learn on the piano. Exactly. Little did I know I really wanted to learn uh, I want I want a, a New, new drug. drug. Yeah. Um, so uh, when you listen back, have you done the AB l- l- lately? Between the two? I have not done the AB. I mean, I because in my mind, okay, I think the bass line is similar. The tempo must be really similar. The bass is what, what nails it for me. And the maybe the drum sound or the groove, whatever, but like... Folks, you can go on YouTube and find a mashup of I Want a New Drug and Ghostbusters if you want to. However, I just got the idea in my head that Leo and I should get together and record a live mashup of Ghostbusters and I Want a New Drug. Let's see if we can put that together. Dum, dum, dum. I mean, I'm not trying to in any way like second guess the decision of the courts or the or the gods, but sure. They, I didn't, I didn't, he obviously, Ray pulled it away enough from yeah. I Want a New Drug that it was not overtly clear yes. to us uh, children on the ground. For sure. And I can't, I can't help but wonder if had not the people of Mm. Ghostbusters contacted Huey Lewis in the first place to say we want a song, if it would have even been on the radar. Yeah. You know, because, you know, back in those days, you know, some artists were lifting other artists' ideas, most famously Michael Jackson's. Mm -hmm. Billie Jean sort of lifted from Hall & Oates. Mm -hmm. I can't go for that. Mm -hmm. And Michael Jackson even went so far as to approach them and say, oh, I'm sorry for lifting that. And they're like, hey, you know, no, no sweat. But Huey Lewis is very savvy. He notices this thing happens, and uh, he jumps on it, and there's a lawsuit. And the end result is that it's a closed case, hush-hush, neither artist is allowed to talk about it. And no one does. Until Huey Lewis (laughs) goes on behind the music, and it's so unfortunate that we can't watch that episode anymore. But he starts talking about the Ghostbusters thing. And because of that, Ray Parker Jr. ends up suing Huey Lewis in the news for breaching their contractual agreement that they're not going to talk about. And do about. we know about what the result of that suit? Uh, the result is Ray Parker made a lot of money. Yeah. And Huey Lewis no longer will talk about Ghostbusters. Yes. Yeah. No, that <laughs> much I know. Finally made, made him be quiet about be it. Be quiet about it. The thing about intent is very real. Like yeah. the difference between being approached to write a song for a film and deciding not to and not ever being approached is massive in terms of the result. You know, like 
because and the other thing is Huey Lewis music and the news music is I need to I need to honor the news more. I really feel that. Oh man. Um is very overt with its influences. Like they they're not afraid to kind of like really show what they love and what they care about. I can't necessarily pinpoint an exact song where you go this is lifted from that. Yeah. But there's a lot of lifting that's going on. For so sure. I mean they understand what it is to borrow lovingly. Yes, of course. And this is like part of the yeah, the entire fabric of music is sort of you take something that's really good that can inspire you and and take it in another direction, but yeah, it's sort of a slippery slope. But yeah, unfortunately what happened happened and um I don't know. I want to know more. Every time I listen to a podcast where they're like, oh, I could tell you some stories. I know. I want like, to be a fly in the wall. Story, so it's got to be in the internet somewhere. Yeah. But I haven't found it. But, I, you know, I, I also don't necessarily know that that little subchapter in the history of Huey Lewis and the News really matters in the big picture because they had so many hits. They sold so many records. Oh, yeah. It's just like, it's more of like a little factoid that people love to kind of like, Mr. Burns out over, oh, like, yeah. oh, I'll tell you some things. But, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, a, it's a footnote, but yeah. still interesting. Super interesting yeah. and, 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 and speaks to the, the I don't know, the, the world of the 80s that we now look back at with like wide eyes. Like, what was that? I'm starting to get hungry. How about you? I cannot wait. Oh, my goodness. So let's put the seafood inside of the chowder <laughs> and dump that into the sourdough bowls and get cooking. Ciao. Dirt. <laughs>
boil the the clams in four cups of water, that's all the stock you need. Mm-hmm. It's got the saltiness. It has this robust, you know, umami flavor. It's so good. So, yeah. Dude, this is outrageous. This <laughs> is so outrageous. And I just want you to know, I don't see how sustainable this is as a podcast if you're going to have to cook on this level every time. But I appreciate being here before you come to your senses because um, this is really probably the best seafood chatter I've ever had. Oh, thank you very much. And I know what you're saying about the stock. You can really, you the clams are kind of yeah permeating the whole thing. Yes, there's a freshness and, and everything to it. Uh, and now I... Revolve this around the New England clam chowder that is put inside of the sourdough bread bowl. Mm-hmm. But I changed it to to add in extra seafood, which which is an easy thing to do. Um, but still, in essence, we're looking at a clam chowder here. Do you do you feel that somehow this is there anything East Coast about this? Like, you know, you were talking about New Jersey and New York. Is there some seafood here that's more East Coast? Um I I certainly focused more on what would be your San Francisco pieces of seafood. Mm-hmm. With the little shrimps, I put flounder in here because mm-hmm. that is the closest fish to sand dab, uh, which they say sand dab uh, tastes like a cross between flounder and French fries, is what they say. Huh. So, I don't know. Maybe they just only eat it fried. I think there's something really special about this, man. I'm not kidding. Uh, and Well... Let me go through the whole thing. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna say I'm the not going to talk. I'm going to say the whole recipe. You eat. I'm eating. And get ready to say some things so that I can eat when 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 I'm done. Yeah, good. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm glad that you, you're going to do the talking. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dig in. All right. So after we have boiled the clams in the four cups of water, you boil it for about 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. And then when you're done, take a look at your clams. If you have any clams that haven't opened, please discard those. Those are poisonous. Those are going to make you feel real sick. Separate the clams from the water. Set your water aside. Set your clams aside. Clean out your pot. Now you have to cook some bacon. I recommend four pieces of bacon. If you you know if you really want to go crazy and do more bacon, that's up to you. But it's all you need is four. You just kind of want to subtly add some smokiness to the the clam chowder because you know Italians look at clam chowder and they're like, "What are you doing? Adding cream to all of this seafood." Mm. Um, and, and bacon, same kind of thing. Like bacon is a really overpowering flavor. So if you just put a little bit, you're going to get the, the depthness of the bacon, but not overpower the pieces of seafood because that's really the star of the show. That's your Huey Lewis. So after you get your bacon, you take your pieces of bacon out. You want nice crispy pieces because you're going to be crumbling those up and adding those later. All right. Now you have a pot of bacon grease, throw in about two Mm. tablespoons of butter Mm. And then after that butter has melted, you're going to put in vegetables. My vegetables I chose were a cup of celery, a cup of carrots, and a small onion. I used red onion. I might recommend more of a yellow or white onion just because of the color. Mm-hmm. Like the color kind of adds something to it. But I don't know. I, this, this seems just fine mm-hmm. from, from my sight. Cook that about three minutes and add a cup of white wine. Mm. After all of your wine is cooked down, then you're going to turn that into a roux. So we're going to add about a three-quarters cup of flour and put that in there and start stirring it. Now, I always feel uncomfortable when I'm making roux because you get your fat and you got, you've got you got your flour and it just turns really crump, 
crumbly, mm-hmm. you know. Essentially, to somebody else in, like, say, the Midwest, you're, you're, you're making gravy is what you're doing. That's gravy. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. So I start adding a little bit more olive oil because I kind of want it to get a nice color. Uh, you want to cook it. The longer you cook it, the nuttier of a flavor you're going to have. Mm-hmm. But you, for this, you don't really need to go all that crazy. Uh, once everything has been incorporated and you've cooked it for about five more minutes, tops, then you start adding back your clam juice that you've saved from the clams that you're making, your clam stock. Um, if you have decided not to use traditional clams, as I said, you can use chicken stock, also works. Um, not the same, but it's going to work. Start adding in that very slowly and whisk it while you're doing it because you want this to start turning into a, a cohesive unit. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm not even going to say it. Uh, but yeah, you, you you mix those together, you slowly add, and after you start adding that, then you want to add the rest of your liquids, which for me, I put in about a half a cup of cream because I like that cream flavor. That seems to be kind of a big component, even though for the most part, I like to stay away from the cream and the butter whenever I can. So I'll use You more. look like you've been avoiding cream and I, butter. You know, You're I, looking good. I, well, shucks, man. You don't look so bad yourself. We do what we can We do what age. we can. Yeah, we're old fellas now. Yeah, yeah, I know. Sitting around eating clam chowder talking about it. <laughs> I feel it. Anyways, um, so after after you've added all this stuff in, you can also put, I usually put about a cup of milk in there, mm-hmm. and then you add potatoes. Mm. I did about three cups of diced potatoes yeah. in the size that you want to consume a potato in a soup. That's what I say. You wanna, I like that instruction. Totally, yeah. I hate it when they say diced medium. I like the question, how big would you like your... T- potato to be yes cut it that size exactly you're eating soup here there's yeah. going to be a bunch of stuff if yeah. you have too big a piece yeah. then you're going to be eating have just you potatoes had soup before eat yeah but make the potatoes that size <laughs> exactly so put the potatoes in you put in a can of, of corn mm. some people say cream corn and i and in the moment i kind of wish that i had cream corn i think cream corn really adds a lot of fun uh and a, t- and a touch more sweetness i just did your your typical can of sweet corn and it gives it a little color gives a little flavor, it adds in with the rest of the seafood, and then you cook that until your potatoes are done. Mm-hmm. After, and, and t- eat a potato, see how it feels. Should be about 20 minutes. Uh, won't take too long, depending on the size that you cut your potatoes. After you have all that, then you're going to re-enter your seafood. Now that's up to you what seafood you want to put in. Obviously, we put the clams back in, but I, I cut the clams up a little bit. They sort of say that's what you want to do, because once again, how, much, how many things do you want to fit on your spoon? So you want smaller clams. Um, also, and I'll just say this, like the Mediterranean folks, they want their clams as small as possible. Those are the tastiest clams. Mm. Here in America, they're like bigger is better. Yeah. You know, and sure, you get a bigger bite, but you're going to get more bang for your buck mm-hmm. if you're going to have these big clams. Clam chowder probably doesn't matter all that much. So I put clams in. I put little tiny, like a can of little tiny shrimp that's the closest thing I would say to like a, the bay shrimp that mm-hmm. they use. I put uh, about a half a pound of scallops. Yep. I put in, uh, a, I would say a pound and a half of flounder, which might've been a little too much. You don't need that much flounder. One pound would do it just fine. But it, you know, once again, it's, it's what, it's the proportions for what you want your soup to be. And you could also put some, um, Dungeness crab in here, which would be labor intensive. That would be, uh, you know, appropriate for your yeah. San Francisco mm-hmm. area food. I also thought to put kettlefish in here, some calamari. Coulda, didn't. I'm glad you didn't. Really? Mm-hmm. Not a fan? Love it. Yeah. I don't Perfect think it needs it to be here. All right. So I'm going to taste this now. 
I see that you have devoured a good portion. I can't stop far. eating this, man. <laughs> and I think that it's eating this food is like listening to Huey Lewis in the news. It's like mm. you tell yourself, like, you know, I'm only going to listen to a couple songs. Yeah. And then you find yourself four hours later listening to the entire discography of Huey Lewis in the news. Guilty pleasure or not. Yeah. I and, think that and you keep finding little nuggets that maybe mm. you didn't notice before, like ooh, like a harmony. Like I keep, I've had a couple of bites, and it's just like, oh, is that a scallop? Oh, exciting! You know, I, you know, <laughs> you can like listening to losing the news. You can eat this thoughtlessly and mindlessly, and just enjoy it for just the total experience. Or you could tear it apart and say, what is that? What was that? What was this? What was that? Yeah, I do think, in the spirit of what we're doing today, clam chowder would not have cut it. It had to be this mixed seafood chowder, and here's why. Huey Lewis is the clams, mm-hmm. right? And it would be good if it was clam chowder. Sure. It'd be really good. He plays a, mine, a mighty fine harmonica. He's a great singer. He's a good singer, has a lot of concept, he's a great showman, and he's a great collaborative songwriter. Yeah. But this other seafood, I mean, that's the blend. Totally. That's the voices. That's the magic component that not everybody can come up with mm-hmm. the cream is clearly the reverb i have, <laughs> I have that I, that i know <laughs> <laughs> that's right you don't need to have it but it won't be the same without it uh, yes yeah you can you, and you can put as much as you want and exactly. it, it's gonna sound really nice it's gonna taste really nice i mean is it is there such a thing as too much reverb yes is there such a thing as too much cream also yes but you know, in in the, there is a lot of wiggle room in between too much and not enough. Mm. So it's up it's up to your taste. That's what we're playing with for sure. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of you cooks out there might be a little hesitant to, you know, when you're cooking, to, you know, make decisions on the fly. You know, but cooking is not baking. Baking is science. Mm. Baking is like classical music. Mm-hmm. Cooking is like jazz. Mm. How are you feeling it? Yeah. What do you want to put in there? Yeah. So when I'm cooking, I am tasting. All the time. Yep. Most putting a spoon in. How's this taste? How's mm-hmm. that taste? You know, put. I'll take a taste of this. I'll take a smell of that. Imagine how these two things are going to coalesce with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think I really think this is where the conversation around food and music is so apt. You know, and it's been talked about in a, a hundred different ways, and here we are talking about it a hundred and one different ways. <sighs> but but it really is true that it's like we were saying earlier. It, it matters what you like. And what you listen to or what you eat, because that's going to influence what you make later on. And like that same thing about the potatoes, you know, how big are you going to cut them? Well, how big would you like to eat them? It's the same thing when you make music, you know? Exactly. What do you like? And do you like what you're making? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, you you have to trust your gut. Mm. And that's the whole thing. You Don't be scared. There's there's no wrong answers. I mean, there are certain points where, you know, something can go wrong, like making your roux. Mm. Um. I, I get scared every time I do it, every time I make a roux. But that's the excitement of it, because because I get to the other side, and it's like, oh, I did it right. Can you come back from a bad roux? I, I don't know. What what what, happened? what what is a bad roux? I, I don't know. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's bad. It just feels unnatural to me, because I don't think we made roux in Wisconsin. Right. It's, <laughs> it's, you're unfamiliar with the, with the process. Yes. Because I'm thinking, like, you know, not to be too on the nose about it, is the roux... The rhythm track is the rue, the drums, you know, like what's the base where it's like, if that's right, then you're, then nothing will go wrong. Is our bread bowl 
the the you know like what's the foundation where you go as long as you get that right you can't mess it up god in I'm, this in this meal what's that i'm gonna say that is the pocket between the drums and the bass mm-hmm. that is that is the foundation of everything and if, if that's not right then your band is a different band what's the equivalent of that in this meal today the roux the roux the roux exactly that's it there it is boom <laughs> Yeah, and it's a beautiful thing, and nobody should forget how wonderful that pocket is by Bill Gibson. Mm. Mm. Bill Gibson, a man, a man who apparently, you know, Bill Gibson is what, the drummer of Hughie Lewis. And what do we know about him? He, I mean, he is a uh, not your typical rock star looking fella. Mm. This is one of the pieces that I remember from the original behind the music that they can't show anymore for legal reasons. But Huey Lewis had stated that the record label mentioned to Huey that he should get a different drummer. Oh no. Yeah, because he said, look at this guy. He's a dork. It's the glasses. Get Poindexter out of the group. Old four eyes. But I mean, he adds that level of professionalism, not to mention voice. The guy can sing. A singing drummer? I mean, there are singing drummers out there. But I mean, he hits these high notes, and you don't—you hardly even notice it. He's just back there being a professional, laying down a groove, locking in with Mario on the yep. bass, and, total, you know. Total pocket. Also, deep, deep pocket. Yes. There, it, it is that generation of drummers who also influenced the sound of drum programming and then were influenced by the sound of drum programming. Like, oh, yes. in order to play a hit drum track in the 80s, you had to be as precise as the drum machine. Like, if you weren't going to use a drum machine, the drummer better be as clock on as the drum machine. Yes. And also trying to find the balance between sounding robotic and giving it an honest human feel is like a new challenge that, you know, drummers didn't have to deal with back in the day. And, you know, I, I might say that is a challenge that today's drummers are having because, you know, they, they didn't have like us, having to shop for records and tapes mm-hmm. back in the day. Everything wasn't just sitting there. Yeah. These days, a program drum is is right there at yeah. your disposal, any kind that you want. Yeah. And playing along with it is sort of mandatory at this yeah. point. And, and oftentimes, the, the actual live drums are way in the back and it hardly even matters anymore. Yeah. It's like whatever that you know drum track is that you're playing along to is sort of the bread and butter of, of the song. Yeah, although you have to... like That was the whole thing about this generation of studio drummers, I think, in the eighties and nineties who, who like had for the first time had to really learn how to play to a click and, and, mm-hmm. and pre- be prepared to lock on top of a drum machine and be seamless like that. That's what I learned about sports is that he's playing on a bunch of the tunes. He's playing fills on top of a drum program. So those fills, they have to feel kind of like intuitively natural to the drum program yeah. and give it life, but not clash. And we never noticed that. You no, know, as yeah, listeners, yeah. We never noticed that. I think p- kids coming today probably, do learn earlier on how to like hook up with the machine. Maybe what they're not learning is how to not hook up with the machine. Uh, You know what I mean? How to to let it breathe. Yeah. Let it be its own instrument and sort of like work with it. And time is fluid. You know, I mean, some of our favorite music, like if as musicians, I think we so often look to the records of the sixties and seventies as our, gold standards you know and what's happening in those records well one thing is there's no click track there's no yeah the the, the time is moving you listen to james brown records and stuff is move you know as much as it's not moving it's moved a little bit yeah yeah, uh, yeah i remember i recorded a cover version of let's get it on uh in years ago and i put the original record in the pro tools file just as a like a reference and 
that tempo is so different at the end. Really? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. it really changed. Uh-huh. I, I feel that there's a number, like Honky Talk Woman by mm-hmm. the Stones is yeah. the same. Sure. Where, and like when you're listening to it, you don't feel it. Yeah. But it's it's pushing ahead. It's fun to listen to those, those old tracks. Somebody had given me the multi-track of Heard It Through the Grapevine. Mm, yeah. Uh, Marvin Gaye. Yeah. And you sort of listen to each part on its own. And it's like, this doesn't really sound all that significant. But somehow you put that all together and it's just magic. Yeah. But the, but I but I don't think that is true of Huey Lewis. I think if we soloed those parts. Yeah, I think you're right. They're kind of perfect. I think that you would find additional magic. Yeah. Like those guitar players. Yeah are monster players. The yeah. sa- you know, everybody is just so good at what they do and also so mindful not to step on each other. They mm-hmm. are masters of just putting exactly what is needed for the song. Like everyone in that band understood we are here to serve the song. Yes. And sort of the best bands in the world understand that. Totally. Like less is more. You've heard it before, but it's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And don't get too clever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. No one likes cleverness since the Beatles. Right. <laughs> I'm having an experience that I, I don't think I've had, at least not in a while, of actually feeling like I'm getting drunk on this chowder. <laughs> I, didn't I, put, I didn't put that much wine in I it. I don't think it's the wine. Okay. I think it's the, the, the body reacting to pleasure. Mm. And uh, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a drug or an alcohol that, uh, that does it to you. You kind of get a loopy on it. Maybe this is our new drug. Ah. This is the new drug you wanted. <laughs> Knocked it out. Nailed it. Yeah. Well, listen, folks, you know, we would be remiss Mm -hmm. if we did not mention Mm -hmm. Huey Lewis's current status Mm -hmm. as a musician. Um, On April 13th, 2018, he announced that he had been diagnosed with Meniere's 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 disease. disease. Meniere's disease, which apparently it means that, you know, his hearing fluctuates, like let's say our hearing is between one and a 10 and we're operating at 10 or nine. His operates between like one half and four. Mm. Um, there are days where his low end, which is your bass sounds, might sound like, boom, 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 sounds like just uh, potato chips is what he says. Is that what he said? Yeah, potato chips. Um, and without that low end, it's nearly impossible to find the correct pitch, mm. which is everything when you're trying to sing a song. If you sing out of tune, especially these days. If you're not singing your song in tune, people notice right away. Mm. And it has been a life-altering experience for Huey Lewis in the news. They were in the middle of recording their latest record. It might be number nine, number Mm -hmm. 10, Weather, which was going to be a full-length record, ended up only being a seven-song EP because after song seven, that was when Huey Lewis came down with this unfortunate disease. So he currently is just out of the game uh, as far as being able to make new music, just because it changes from day to day. So if he books a gig, he doesn't know if he's going to have enough hearing to be able to do the show or not. So it's a really frustrating moment. And he's, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, considered committing suicide. Mm. Obviously, music was his everything. And it's just tragic to, to possibly think that you lose your entire livelihood behind something like that. Thank God he did not, because on top of being a great musician, he's one of the kindest, nicest, likable dudes on planet Earth. Yep. So I'm so glad that, you know, he's still with us and still like, you know, found the other side of life and and this is such a big question though, you know, like follow your passion, do what you love. And 
that's the thread that we all pull on, right? To, to like, to know what to do next in our lives. Yes. But what happens when that betrays you? You know, who are we? Yeah. Obviously we're much more than the sum of the things that we do, but to reach that stage in your life where you can't do the one thing that got you through going all the way back to how scrappy he was, yeah. right. And how wily he was and how he would, he, he survived like the harmonica is probably the thing that saved his life. Yes. And it, not to be able to do it. Ugh, I can't imagine. People. But life it goes on and we learn to live with so much less than we think, you know, it's almost Shakespearean and, or, you know, it's tragic in the sort of Greek tragedy sense of like the idea Huey Lewis can't hear yeah. anymore. And so he can't, he, he's got the voice. He's still got the pipes. Yes. But he can't use them out of the context of knowing what he sounds like. Johnny Cola is is holding out hope that his commander in chief is going to mm. come through on the other side. You know, we thought the same thing about Brian Johnson mm-hmm. of of uh, ACDC. His problem was different than Huey Lewis's, but I mean, it's it's clear that there are a number of people trying to work towards getting him back into you know being Huey Lewis again. In the meantime, he has been out there, you know, doing podcasts and yeah. telling the story and. <laughs> And um, and that's valuable, too. For sure, yeah. And in the meantime, the question has been posed to various members of the news. Like, is there any The News featuring some oh, other singer? Oh. And, and they all said, absolutely not. No, I don't see that at all. Huey Lewis in the News is a commodity. Yeah, you don't put chicken in this clam chowder and call it Huey Lewis in the News. You Heck know what I'm saying? No. Do you know people put chicken in sushi? Yeah. Did you know that? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Now, you can't roll up a piece of chicken and rice and nori and call it sushi, you know? Ugh. Ugh. Anyways. So, uh, you know, our fingers are crossed. Huey yeah. Lewis is going to come back. And with that, I think we're going to turn the microphones off and devour the rest of our soup. The difference between us at this moment is that I actually ate this entire bowl of bread. Yeah. And you have a <laughs> lot of work to do. I got some work to do. And there's much more clam chowder if you want it. I know. It was a big helping. So, Oof. yeah. Good luck with that. Well, Leo, thank you so much for coming over and uh, enjoying this delicious dish with me in uh, beautiful Greenpoint, Brooklyn. It's been a pleasure to catch up with you again and wax Huey Lewis in the news. Nate, it has been such a pleasure, and uh, I'm I'm deeply impressed with your whole presentation, both the podcast and and the chowder, and uh, and frankly, the view here from this apartment in in Greenpoint. It's not not a bad spot. All right, listeners, we'll talk to you soon. Cook on, rock out. Ciao, ciao. All right, there we go. Huge thanks to the very generous, thoughtful, amazing Leo Sidron. Check out his podcast, The Third Story with Leo Sidron. And feel free to check out more episodes of my podcast, too, This Band Could Be Your Food. And check out the website, www.thisbandcouldbeyourfood.com. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, This Band Could Be Your Food. Get notifications on Twitter, TBCBYF. Follow me on Facebook, This Band Could Be Your Food. Follow me on Instagram, all that social media. I'm on it. If you have a spare moment, please go to Apple Podcasts, rate the show, write a couple words. Tell me what you like about it. If you have any artists that you'd like me to cover, let me know. As I said, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. Shoot me a message. I would love to get your input. All right, I'm gearing up for the next episode. I have another really great guest, the amazing Rob Laxo who has for years been the right-hand man for Kurt Vile and the Violators. He's their bass player, one of their producers. 
indie rock staple. He's coming on, and apparently he really likes Aerosmith, so we're going to be talking about Aerosmith next episode. You want to talk about a band with a lot of stories. It'll practically have to be a two-parter, but we'll cram it. We'll cram it all in into one. Until then, let's just keep our fingers crossed that the weather's going to warm up here real soon on a semi-permanent basis. And that's it. I'm your host, Nathan Palin. This band could be your food. Cook on a rock out. Ciao, ciao. the home.